Nathan Lopez Cardozo is a Dutch-Israeli rabbi, philosopher, and scholar of Judaism. A sought-after lecturer on the international stage for both Jewish and non-Jewish audiences, Rabbi Cardozo is known for his original and often controversial insights into Judaism. He's the author of 13 books and the founder of the David Cardozo Academy in Jerusalem. I sat down with Rabbi Cardozo at his office to discuss his unique upbringing, his philosophy of halachic Judaism, the reform movement, the Kotel Agreement, the Holocaust, God, and much more. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figured Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. Support for this episode of Jewish People and Ideas comes from the Mayanot Institute of Jewish Studies, located in the heart of Jerusalem, providing a highly academic Judaic studies curriculum taught by a dynamic staff and a welcoming atmosphere. To learn more, go to mayanot.edu. Rabbi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Very special. It's really my honor. So it is mine. So we'll start off with... um, what, the question that I had for you is, should I call you Rabbi or Nathan? Because in our email correspondence, you always wrote Nathan. Right. But it would be disrespectful to call you Nathan. I was writing you Nathan. I didn't know. <laughs> it really does not make any difference to me. The only thing is that I'm known as Rabbi Cardozo in the outside world. But it is up to you to decide. Okay. Nathan is absolutely fine. I'm going to call you Rabbi. Okay. An interesting thing in what I wrote here in the notes that I sent you before we met is that so my rabbi, Shalom Brat, right. he insisted on not being called a rabbi. Yeah. People would call him rabbi, he'd go, he'd say, oy vey. Yeah. Basically, he felt like he never could live up to the name rabbi. Do you think sometimes people hide behind the name rabbi? Yes. I'm even afraid that sometimes I do myself. Not because I want, because but because you're pushed into it. People uh, want an authority. They want somebody to rely on. And then they find somebody, or it is Rabbi Brot, or it is me, or somebody else. And I think they hide behind it, and therefore we hide behind it. They hide behind it because they give over the authority, which they really should have themselves about their own lives. And they basically uh, give it up and give it to somebody else, which is a much easier way of living. You make my decisions, in other words, which I think is very un-Jewish or anti-Jewish. And I don't really want to be part of that, but it does happen. And it is not always pleasant because everybody knows that we are much smaller than what people think we are. And uh, therefore, to carry that name has tremendous responsibility, sometimes to the point that people think that you are an angel and that you don't make any mistakes and things like that and you have a marvelous amount of knowledge which is beyond the normal and these things are not true. It is definitely true that you have to have a lot of knowledge and uh, you have to be careful what you do because indeed the outside world sees you like that and that carries a responsibility with it. But in general, I don't like to be called rabbi. Somebody asked me not so long ago, would you have been uh, more easy with a professor, a doctor? I have a doctor's degree in philosophy and I would say yes. But that also means that therefore you're not getting very much attention in the religious world because a professor is just a professor right. and he's definitely not an halachic uh, authority or anything like that. And with that comes, by the way, and also things which uh, I think is highly un- unhealthy and that is that today they speak about what they call in the Ashkenazi pronunciation that somebody is called Das Teure, which means to say some kind of prophetic insight into life and therefore they can give you the final answer of exactly what God, have, what God would have told you, or you have Ruach HaKodesh, which is even more than that, a kind of uh, godly inspiration. And these are very dangerous things to claim. Uh, rabbis misuse that sometimes, especially in the ultra-Orthodox world, and um, we have to stay away from it. We are not infallible. We do make mistakes. What we can do is to give somebody an idea about what 
possibly the Torah would say about your particular question, especially when it is a non-halachic question, but it's a life question about what shall I do in this case concerning the education of my children or something like that. So yes, I am not very comfortable with the word rabbi, but I will have to live with it for the rest of my life. How did your parents meet? First of all, my parents are a mixed marriage. That means my father was Jewish, and both of them are no longer alive. I'm 73 years old myself. And he was a very proud Portuguese-Spanish Jew in Holland, in Amsterdam. The Portuguese-Spanish community was rebuilt in Amsterdam after the Inquisition, when they moved from Spain to Portugal, and from Portugal they went or first to Italy, it's not exactly clear, but ultimately they ended up in Amsterdam and they built a very big community there, which has this famous uh, Bet Knesset synagogue, uh, the Snoge, as we call that, as Snoge, I mean synagogue in uh, Spanish. And there they uh, built a very unusual, uh, highly complex community of Maranos, of Anusim, of people, conversos, as they're called, people who are where all educated in the Catholic Church because of the Inquisition. They run away, came to Holland, wanted to become Jewish, and in many ways they kept on thinking in Christian terms while living a Jewish life, which is a very unusual combination. How, how many generations? Were this is three and a half, 350 years ago. No, but how far after the Inquisition? This is about 200 years after the Inquisition, because ah. first there was an Inquisition in Spain, then they moved to Portugal, where there was no Inquisition, and then 100, 150 years later, there was an Inquisition in Portugal, and then they left altogether. It was a very rich community with uh, international uh, connections, business-wise, very, very well-to-do. And your, your mother saved your father? Yes, and so my father was Jewish, and then my parents met in a Jewish business of sewing machines in Amsterdam and they fell in love. I never understand how you can fall in love, but that's a different story. You can walk in love, you can be in love, but falling in love is a typical English expression, which says something about the English. And they married a few weeks before the Holocaust broke out, or be better, before the Nazis entered Amsterdam. And then my mother said, when it became clear what they were intending to do is the Jews, bring all your family, my father's family to our home. They had a little apartment in the center of Amsterdam, no, in the south of Amsterdam, and I will hide them. I'm the only non-Jew among all of them. There were about 12, 13 people, and she hid all of them in this very small little apartment. How she did that till this day, I don't understand. She never wanted to speak about it. She once gave a little bit of an interview about it for my grandchildren and for her grandchildren better, and a um, remarkable lady, uh, really uh, did the most here heroic things to keep the family alive. And everybody man managed to get through the Holocaust except one uncle of mine, the youngest son of, uh, surely the youngest brother of my father. He was called Nico. I'm called Nico in my non-Jewish name, Nathan his Jewish name. So I have a Jewish name called Nathan. That's the way I'm called today. He didn't want to hide. He was afraid of it. And he went off to Germany and never came back and was murdered. Hmm. Yeah, but my mother basically saved about 12, 13 people. And at what point did your mother decide to become a Jew? I converted when I was 16 years old, because then I got very interested in the Jewish tradition and decided on the end, after I found out that I was not Jewish, which I thought I was, but halachically I was not Jewish. And then I went through the whole process of conversion and then... About five years after that, I think it was that my mother said to my father, I need to do that as well. She must have been about 45, something like that. I don't remember exactly anymore. And they got married by the same rabbi and the same Portuguese Spanish synagogue three months before I got married. It is highly unusual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how do you feel that your very unique upbringing affected your teaching? 
and your thinking? I think it very much influences me. I think over the years it became even more when I realized my background and uh, from where I came and what happened at home. And my father was a big Spinoza lover, the secular Jewish famous philosopher in Amsterdam. And we were brought up, my brother and me, we were brought up on his laps, basically on his, on his lap. Uh, Spinoza was our rabbi at home. and uh, But he was obviously completely anti-religious. But because of that, I think that over the years when I kept on learning and studying Spinoza, which I do till this very day, he's one of the great philosophers, even when I do not agree with him on his critique on the Jewish tradition, that's a story on its own. What it meant and even means more today is that when I look at the Jewish tradition, I've studied 12 years in Yeshivot Charediot, in ultra-Orthodox Yeshivot. I now realize how much I am an outsider looking inside that world while I live in that world. In other words, I live a full halachic Jewish religious life, with some exceptions. We can speak about that in a moment. Um, but every time I ask myself, how do I look to all that, at all that? Um, how would I explain that to a non-Jew, which I often had to do? And uh, then you realize how strange it is what we Jews do, religious-wise. How am I going to make sense out of that towards the non-Jew? If I can do that, then I perhaps get a grasp on it. If I cannot do that, then it means that I am missing something in all this. And therefore, I've been writing books lately. I wrote 13 books uh, with that uh, particular point of view. It needs to be explained, and it has to be explained in proper language and proper modern philosophical language. And that also made me to understand that the halachic system by which I live really exists of something quite different from what most rabbis and most orthodox Jews believe it is. So would you please explain that? What it means is that I now realize that the halacha as we know it today, Jewish law as we know it today, is the result of the last 2,000 years of living in exile. Uh, the halacha was built, A, first by the Mishnah, afterwards by the Talmud. Both were written in exile, under exile conditions, and therefore they represent that world, a world which was very defensive, which was very held back because we had to defend ourselves against the non-Jewish world and not getting influenced by that non-Jewish world. We built very large and huge walls around us, which at the time was the only way to survive exile, which was so often a matter of anti-Semitism. And now I realize, also because I've been reading about this, that there was a kind of halakha which existed before the days of the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, which was purely sent from one generation to the next on an oral level, which is really the oral Torah, the Torah Shabal Pei. And I think there lies the key to what really the Halakha is all about, and not all the walls which we have created over the years just to make sure that we would survive exile. So it is a exiled Halakha which today we live, and I think that now that we are back in Israel, which is a tremendous blessing, we have to go back to the original, one which is organic, which grows with the time, which responds to the new circumstances, and we are still not doing this in this country, and definitely not the chief rabbinate and the official mainstream rabbinical uh, world. And that is a world which is fascinating, not easy, by the way, to discover, because you have to go back to texts which really don't exist, because it was orally transferred from one generation to the next. But you do find pieces here and there in the Mishnah, in the Talmud, in the Midrash, and I think we need to rebuild from there. Can you give me an example of the old halacha as opposed to what we're doing now? I'll give you two examples. One which I discussed with my brother, you know about, you just told me, the question about wine when it is touched by non-Jews. You find in our Mekorot, in our sources, that when 
a non-Jew who is an idol worshipper touches our wine, the wine bottle, actually when he moves it, we are no longer allowed to drink it. Even when it is kosher wine or wine made by Jews at the time, we are no longer allowed to drink this. The reason for that is quite obvious. The rabbis wanted to keep away from any kind of idol worship or something even what smelled of idol worship. And therefore they said, we will not allow Jews to drink the wine once it has been touched by these idol worshippers. Now what happened was that suddenly this became a major law which everybody was keeping and forgetting about the fact that most people today in the West are no longer idol worshippers. And therefore I think that if you would go back to the original sources, it is very clear it is only speaking about idol worshipping people. And these were mean people. These were wicked people. This is not just a matter of idol worshipping in the sense of bowing down in front of an image, but they, these were people who would sacrifice their children and would do all sorts of most terrible things. And the rabbis wanted us to keep away from that and therefore they made these laws a kind of a warning. Don't get close to that world, especially when you drink together with them and you uh, lose it a little bit. This is not what you should be doing, so don't drink it. But if today we're speaking about fine non-Jews, even Christians who are living a very high moral level, I'm sure that the original law was never meant for this. But we keep on observing this law when I feel that by now there is absolutely no reason anymore to do that. And I have even sources for that. I know that Italian rabbis, famous Italian rabbis, used to drink non-kosher wine. They even made kiddush on it. Why? Because they said it no longer applies. And this happens a lot more in the Sephardi world, which is my world really, the Western Sephardi, than in the Ashkenazi world. But when I said this, I got very heavily attacked for this. Obviously, I knew that that would be happening, and that's fine. But that's one good example. Another example, which is much more critical, is here in this country. There was a famous Ashkenazi rabbi uh, who is called in the yeshiva world, also he's not very much known, but he was a tremendous Talmud Chacham, called Rabbi Moshe Shmuel Glasner, who wrote a most important introduction to the tractate Chulin, uh, which he commented on the whole of the tractate. And there in the introduction, he writes about this idea that the oral Torah should have stayed oral and should never have been written down. Codification is anti-Jewish because it stagnates the development of the law, basically, if you at least keep that codification going for all time and you don't change it. But in one of his other works, he writes that what happens in a case where on Shabbat, a fire breaks out in your home. Uh, are you allowed to ex extinguish this, yes or no? So the official law is no, because as long as there's nobody in danger of life, you are not allowed to violate Shabbat. So therefore, officially, you're not allowed to do that. So what happens if you live among the non-Jews? This is what the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, the famous Ashkenazi authority, asks. So he says, there you can do it because it is dangerous. If you let your whole home uh, burn down, then it may also burn down the home next door, which belongs to the Gentile, and that will get us into great trouble. So you, now you are allowed to ask the fire brigade to come or to do it yourself. So... What this rabbi is asking is, so what happens in Tel Aviv, where we are only living among non-Jew, among Jews? Would we have to have half of Tel Aviv burned down because of this? So then he says something really very, very unusual and out of the box. He says, we are making a mistake. He says, I believe that sakanat nefashot, the concept of, uh, being in danger of life is not just being danger of life in the sense of physically being in danger of life that you die if you don't uh, violate the Shabbat, right? But he even says that is in an economic sense of the word. If somebody would lose all his money, which is in his home, that is his real estate, that is what he has, it all burns down. And tomorrow morning he gets up and he can't look anymore after his family because he has got no money left anymore. So what is he going to do then? So he says, I believe that's also Sakanat Nefashot. Even so, nobody got into danger of life physically. But it is undermining a, a person's way of living. He can't look after himself. He can't look anymore after his wife and his children. I consider that, he says, also as a form, as a kind of sakanat nefashot. And it seems that they are saying, he's not very clear there, but he seems to be saying that would 
apply to a modern Jewish state. I'll give you one example. I wrote about this. We have the Ayalon Bridge, and uh, we are speaking about, uh, you know, that we need to build it on Shabbat, because on the weekdays it will create a complete disaster on the road, and it will mean that people can't go to their work in time. It could undermine our economic situation in the state of Israel. So the question now is, should we or should we not violate Shabbat so that we can build the Ayalon on Shabbat, which makes it much easier. And it doesn't have the economic results, the bad and dangerous economic results that people can't do business because they can't get to their work. So I wrote an article and I said, wouldn't this apply here as well? If a state like the state of Israel, which is a modern state, can't develop economically properly because of a law of Shabbat, which undermines this, altogether, and the Ayalon Bridge is only one small example of many other cases like that, then it may be that we are allowed and we should indeed violate the Shabbat, not by asking non-Jews to build it, but do it ourselves. I would even say let religious people do it, but let's do it the Jewish way. How do we do it the Jewish way? The Jewish way is by having a movable synagogue next to where we work, on Shabbat, building the railway or the bridge. And then when we swift, other people come to work. The others go to shul, they go to Bet Knesset, we read Parashat Shavua, they uh, pray the morning uh, prayers. Afterwards, somebody will make kiddush, and then they go back to their work. Because we have to keep the uh, very ruach, the spirit of Shabbat alive, even while we are doing this kind of work. And there are many more examples I can think of, which in the future will create huge problems. And I think that what this rabbi wrote over here was, by the way, a Haredi rabbi in every other respect. And he uh, he said, he seems to say, uh, you can do this sort of thing because this falls under Sakanat Nefashot of the state of Israel. Mm. And that would be a remarkable thing to say. And I'm sure that many people will not agree with it, but I do. I'm holding your latest book in my hand here, Jewish Laws Rebellion. What do you mean by Jewish law being a rebellion? That the Jewish tradition is a rebellious tradition. It is a tradition which protests against taking life for granted, taking the world for granted, and not living our servants of, of our Jewish life, the way how we live our religious life, to take that for granted that it becomes something automatic, that it becomes something which is just built into our DNA without realizing anymore what it really tries to teach us. So I believe that we Jews are the big Protestants of this world. We are there to protest against when you don't see the beauty and the greatness of the world anymore, when you don't get amazed, when you don't stand in wonder, whether it is the coming up of the sun in the morning or also natural events. Uh, one who needs to walk around in this world being constantly amazed about ourselves, about our wives, about our children, about uh, animals, uh, about nature. And that is the purpose, in my opinion, of why Jewish law exists, to make us aware, be alert, be aware this is an unusual world and everything from the very beginning that you get born till you die is one big miracle and be amazed. So my book, which discusses many issues, is using this as the point of departure also to deal with many halachic problems, uh, that halacha must be seen in that light. When we make a bracha, a blessing on what we drink, what we eat, that's a statement of amazement. It's not just saying the bracha, bohata Hashem, and so on, but it is like I, if I put an apple into my mouth, I should be asking myself something like, uh, how is it that I love to eat this apple? What makes it so interesting and tasteful? Why is it that I'm able to eat that apple and that my body is able to deal with it? In fact, it is good for my body. These are all amazing effects for which science really hasn't got an answer. So what I should be saying is before I eat the apple is something like, wow. And now the question is, how do you translate wow in Hebrew? And the answer is, Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam Borei Peri Ha'etz. This is the whole meaning of a bracha. It's a statement of amazement. And I see most of Jewish law in that light. So you're saying Jewish law is a technology for making us aware. Yes, it is a religious, amazing experience. And people take it for granted. And people take it for granted, including myself. emotions. Yes, we get used to it. Like Shachit Mencha Ma'arif. Exactly. 
Exactly. Sure. So you want to ask me why uh, don't I always pray? I, I read in one of your articles. Yes, that's true. Yeah, no, I, you're I right. spent about five or six hours going through well, your articles. Thank you very much for that. One of the things that caught my eye is I don't always daven. True. You said Mincha and Mari. You didn't right. say Shachit. No. Shachit, you said Shachit, I always daven. And to be honest, uh, not to be arrogant or anything like that, I, in the morning when I daven, I do not go to Bet Knesset. It goes too fast for me. I can't concentrate. For me, concentration Kavana is extremely important. Otherwise, I feel I'm just going with the whatever the people in the synagogue are doing, and that is not what I want to experience as my praying. So, I daven at home. I even put on the tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam, not only of, of uh, Rashi. Uh, why? Because it does something to me. I can't explain you what it is, but it gives me a push, a religious push. I also put on a bit of time. Good for you. Good for you. And uh, I advise everybody to do this, but there's no obligation. The reason why I do not always pray the afternoon prayers or the evening prayers is because if I really don't feel in the mood of it, if I'm not in the right mindset, or I should say my heart is not with it, and I just... Uh, do the external side of it, it doesn't speak to me. I feel a certain inauthenticity there, as if I'm not saying the truth or I'm not honest with myself. At that moment, I decide not to pray. And that, by the way, is the original halacha. If you even look in the Shulchan Ruch in the Codex of Jewish Law, you see that one shouldn't pray when one can't concentrate, and then just leave it. Later on, the sages said, which I understand, you pray in any way, otherwise you won't pray at anymore because who is able today still to pray with kavana, with intention. And I understand that and I appreciate that, but it's not for me. So I wait and I try very hard to do that, to be able to really pray a mincha prayer, which takes much longer than the one in the synagogue. And I have to get myself into the right mood of it. And this marif is the evening prayer as well. And that's what I do because then I feel I'm authentic. And to me, authenticity is perhaps the most important word in this whole matter. So that's the reason why I do not always pray. That sounds I, like I don't feel good enough. I don't feel big enough to do this on a daily, day-to-day basis. Sounds like a Katzker Hasid. To a certain extent, that's true. I was influenced by him. You me- so you mentioned that the rabbis say, pray even if you don't feel like it, otherwise you won't pray. Yeah. The phrase that came to me, the thought, the thought that came to me is, Hamasei Uaikar. Yeah. That the action is the main thing. And a lot of times I daven, and I finish the davening, I say, Oh boy, did I even right, daven? Right, right, right. But I, I know I did it, and some days I do come back to it, and I'm, yeah. I'm there. But because Absolutely I've got true. the practice of doing it, yeah. it's waiting for me when I am ready. Franz Rosenzweig, one of the great Jewish philosophers of the last century, who was not fully orthodox, he perhaps belonged more to the conservative movement, but he was an extremely interesting man, deeply religious, he used to say like this, you have to hear in the deed. What we say, na'aseve nishma, do and hear. So he said, na'aseve nishma is not matter that I first do it and then I hear it. No, I have to hear in the deed. In other words, if I do the deed and it speaks to me, yes, and it says to me, this is who you are at this moment, then you have done it the proper way. But he said, how often does this happen in a human life that you're really able to live up to that? So that's the way how I live my life. I'm not saying that also should do that. They should not take an example from me, but I just can't do it in a different way. I, I need to hear in the deed and I do not always. And therefore I do not want to pray unless they need me in a minyan and uh, they need me as a tense man, let's say, then I obviously will go. And on Shabbat, I go in any way, even when I don't have that right intention, because I want to be among, among the Jews. I want to hear the Parashat Shavua, the portion of the week. And uh, I love the prayers. They are great, but sometimes I can't live up to them. They are too great. Too great. I can understand that. Uh, I lead the davening. During the week, I lead the davening in the Yiddish-speaking Haredi Shul. Wow. It's a very strange thing that somebody who looks like me <laughs> leads the davening That's there. beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, it's Nechlaot, and the older right. generation yeah. passed away. Right. The right. younger generation's not that young, but they don't want to lead the davening. Right, right. And I said, I'll do it. So Good for every you. Every day I'm up there. Good for you. I learned a little Yiddish. Good. Excellent. And we're all buddies. Good. Which is the Bo most Hashem, amazing that thing. That is the great thing about the state of Israel. Something very special. Very special. Yeah. Very special. I, I watched a little bit of Shtisel. Right. 
I watched the first season, then right. I got tired of it, but right. I realized I live in Stiesel. Right. <laughs> My life right. is Stiesel. Right. Right. I have a great problem with Stiesel. I, I saw a few of them. My children and my wife like it. I don't. And I tell you why. Because in Stiesel, while it is very truthful and the people play very well how this world lives its life, what I find lacking, and that is because I'm an ideologist and I'm a dreamer, is that it does not promote the kind of the Jewish tradition which I would like to see. These people live a fully ultra-Orthodox life, but they are not inspirational. No. And they are not inspirational to the Israeli uh, viewers. So I'm saying, so what is the point we are trying to make that we are like them? We should be an example. The Haredi community should be an example. We should stand out and say, this is what it means to be a Jew. And that doesn't happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen in all of the Haredi community right. because I know there are very fine people there. Uh, but I find that it reduces the Jewish tradition, Stiesel, reduces the Jewish tradition to a way of living. You know, this is the way how we live. The seculars, they live their way. Each one is fine. Well, I expect more from the Orthodox community. The Haredi community. The Haredi community, and to a certain extent, the modern Orthodox community as well. I think, uh, I I know the Haredi community just from the shul that I daven in. Right. And I go to Zichon Moshe, to right. daven Mincha. Right. You don't really get to know anybody there. Just a factory. Right. I think if you sat down with them and you spoke with them, they would say, I agree with you. Yep. I know but that. the Haredi, uh, uh, Haredi in English is usually defined as ultra-Orthodox, but I call it isolationist Orthodox. Yep, there's certain truths to that. That's kind of the philosophy. We are set in our ways. No yep. one goes out. No one comes in. Don't leave us bother alone. us. Don't bother us. We are fine like this. We are happy like this. The whole point of life is not to be comfortable. The whole point is to be uncomfortable because the moment you're comfortable, it means to say that you get used to it. So what is the point? Which is Jewish law as a rebellion. Exactly. Got it. You've been compared to David Hartman. Yes. Not David Hartman. David Hartman, right? David, David Hartman. Shalom Hartman is the name of the institute. Correct. He embraced the liberal movements, which yes. led to a lot of money, a lot of success in the Hartman Institute. Yes. You didn't embrace the liberal movements in the same way. Not in the same way. I believe that there is much to learn from reform. There's a lot to learn from conservative Judaism. I read their works and their papers and uh, what they publish. There's a lot of very good stuff there, which I think every Orthodox Jew should read because even the critique, the bicurate, the criticism which they have on the Orthodox community, I think is very often to the point and speaks to me. My problem with reform is that very often it has become, as far as I know it, that's European, let's first of all say that, it became a Sunday morning religion. Like you go Sunday morning to church, so Saturday morning you go to shul. And it has no implications. I do what I need to do. I'm a Jew. This is for me not good enough for one good reason. It lacks passion. You can't educate your children in a way which is without passion, without feeling that I'm living for a greater goal or for something very special. To me, we Jews are missionaries. Not in the sense that we want to make also people Jews, but definitely that we want to use our Torah to influence them and to make a better world out of them and to make and create better human beings. And therefore, our mission is universal. While we are particularists in the sense that we want to stay Jews and we don't marry out, but without passion, if things get too easy, you can't keep your young people uh, with you. And that is what is happening today in the reform community. It was the famous Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I'm sure you know about, and I'm very influenced by, who was a Hasidic thinker, basically. Sure, a descendant of the Aptera. Uh, that's right, yes. Uh, was an unusual man. I never met him. I met his uh, daughter, but never him, to my great regret, uh, who used to say the big question in life is this. Is there really something to live for to the extent that you are prepared to die for it? And, and also, there is a dangerous side to this because also religions use that to create violence. The principle is correct in the sense if I don't show to my children that I'm prepared to die for my Jewishness and for my religious Jewish life, then what is that life all about? How much worse 
is it? What is its value? And that is what is missing very much in the reform. And it's also missing to a great extent in the conservative movement. I think the conservative movement is basically having a problem with becoming so scientific and so uh, busy with the history of the Jewish tradition. And they have done a great job there, by the way. The fact is that to be passionate about it, that is much more than just knowing its history. You have to live with it. It has to be in, they say in Yiddish, in your kishkas. And this is what is lacking in these two movements. And therefore, I also believe that the future lies with orthodoxy. I don't like that word because orthodoxy is a Greek word. It really doesn't fit us because it means a one-way road. And there are so many ways within orthodoxy that you can't call it by that name. But what it does mean is that there is something about it, especially how I read it, I must say that and admit that, which I think is laying the foundations of the future. But for that, we have to go back what I said earlier. We will have to go back to the original halacha, which is pre-Mishnah and pre-Talmud. And it is going to take time before we discover that and before we accept that. It was Yitz Greenberg, or is Yitz Greenberg, a good friend of mine, who is a great thinker, who is completely unknown in Israel, who used to speak about, or still speaking about, the third epoch, Within the Jewish that was in my interview with Yossi. Uh-huh. Uh, that's right, you spoke about it there, yeah. So, and I think he's so right. Since the Holocaust and the establishment of the state of Israel, we have come in a new condition of what it means to be Jewish. Uh, we are living a different life now than we did for the last 2000 years and before. And that has all sorts of consequences for also how we develop the halacha accordingly. I think we are uh, at the moment in a kind of situation where we are slowly moving into this epoch. I don't know if we are still there, but we are already standing with one foot outside. And therefore, we have to introduce it and to bring it closer to our hearts. And I think that Yitz Greenberg there made an incredible important contribution, which is not at all understood by the Orthodox community and not even by Yeshiva University, which I think is a terrible tragedy. Is this going to happen on its own or is it, you can't force on people change? No, it will happen on its own and it probably won't happen via the rabbis, but it will happen via the, the layman, the, the, the common people. Because you see now in Israel, it's already happening, that there are many people getting up and say, I need to find my way back to the Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. But that's not the rabbinate. That's not the rabbinical, uh, you know, world. It is a world of authenticity. And uh, there is much more about this now, Shmuel Rosner. I think just wrote a very important article about it where he speaks about the Israeli Jew who is a combination of religiosity with this strong feeling for nationality, for being an Israeli. And out of that will come probably, it will take time, a new kind of, let's call it for the lack of a better word, orthodox Judaism, but that will look very different from anything which we have at this moment. I want to talk about the Kotel. Yeah. The Kotel has become this crazy symbol of a clash between Israelis that, for the most part, don't care about it. Correct. And the liberal movements in America, at least, that are incredibly passionate about it. Is one passion? The Kotel is passion <laughs> for the liberal movements. I grew up in the reform movement. Right. I wanted to be a reform rabbi. Right. To the disappointment of my reform rabbi, I look like this now. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I went off the dinner. You should do teshuva. I told my mother she should, she should have checked her mezuzahs. Because my brother also became religious. It's just the uh, two yeah, of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrible, so terrible. I think the reform movement found their passion in the women of the wall and supporting the women of the wall at the Kotel. Yes. Uh, I'm going to be very harsh. I don't trust it. Uh, that doesn't mean to say I don't trust these women. But I think what they did was they are hiding the real problems about the reform community and their relationship to the Orthodox world uh, behind that cocktail. Because that's not the issue. The issue is what does it mean to be a religious Jew? The cocktail is just a way of discussing that 
which is not getting us anywhere. I wrote an article a few years ago about the, in the Jerusalem Post where I said, we must be totally crazy that we are making this issue about the Kotel. First of all, the Kotel was never a synagogue. There should never be a minyan there. It is a place of meditation. It is a place of, of spontaneous uh, prayer where people can go and there is no need for a mechitza between men and women and division between men and women. Everybody, including non-Jews, can come there and pray to God because that is the very meaning of that place. The Kotel does not do anything for me. I never go there. It only does something for me in the historical sense of the word, and that is that it is also proof and a most important proof for the fact that we Jews have always been here the last few thousand years, because this is the only thing what is left of the temple, which was the place where we used to have an encounter with God. And for that, it is an important place. But the famous or not so famous Yeshaya Leibowitz, you know, the controversial orthodox thinker, some people wouldn't even call him orthodox, used to play, used to say it became a a place of Avodazara, of idol worship. And I understand that very well, what he's trying to say there. Since when are we praying uh, to walls and to stones? That is not really what this place is all about. It is about the Ruach, the spirit of this place, which is symbolized within this wall. That's definitely true. But we made this wall into something holy in a sense that the stones themselves become holy. And that is not what it is all about. So I really never go there. It doesn't speak to me. But I understand that also people are in need of it. But I think the whole thing about the cotel between the Reform and the Orthodox movement is a completely crazy thing. It should be stopped as soon as possible. I even wrote in this article, if we are not able somehow to make peace about it, we better close the whole place down altogether and go somewhere else because it is a shameful business. And that's still what I believe. It is a shameful business, but the feeling that I have is that it was an orthodox shul. Even though you say it shouldn't be, that's, we talked about natural developments. Right. That's how it developed. True, but it was originally never used as a shul. Now it is. Yes, now it is. That's definitely there, true. There are minions there yes. all the time. So then in that case, the Orthodox movement uh, has all the right to protest and say, we need a division between a man and a woman, and we want to do it our way, as long as they give a place for the reform or the conservative somewhere else. So they have it now. They have an egalitarian section. Okay. Which is open 24-7. Yes. And how many people pay. of reform nobody. are coming there? I never see anyone there. There's nobody there. I go to the hotel a, a few times a year. That's right. Every time I go, I make sure to check. Right. I also do this once in a while. There's nobody there. So what are we fighting about? But I still believe that they, if they want to have that place, let them have that place, but let them not fool themselves that that is what the issue is all about, and where the passion should be. The passion should be about the sum total of the Jewish tradition, even when they want to read in it a reformed kind of way. Fine. You know, I can live with that, even when I don't agree with it. But to make this as their only passion, they are not going to have that passion with their children and their grandchildren. No. I think it's a life preserver for them. Absolutely. They were drowning. This came at them. They sure, grabbed at it sure. and put everything yeah, into yes. it. I really believe that they are misusing it. And I say this with the greatest amount of respect. They should think about also ways to create passion among their believers and about among their followers and among their children. The cuttle is not going to help them there in any way. You receive hundreds of emails a week. Correct. Is there one or several questions that you think about often, something that made an impact on you? Several. One of them is the question about God and the Holocaust, which constantly comes up. How did God allow this to happen? And to what extent is he guilty of the Holocaust? Being God, nobody less. Second question is Torah mina shamayim. Is the Torah really from heaven? Uh, the scroll which we have in the synagogue, is that the one which we received at Sinai? These are the most important questions I often think about. I've read a lot about it. I've written about it in different books and in essays. And then the big question is, 
the moral question. There are some moral problems within Jewish law. Take, for example, the case of the aguna, of the woman who can't get remarried because her husband refuses to give her a bill of divorce, a get. That's a moral problem. Our relationship with the non-Jewish world, which is not always so nice when you look into the Jewish tradition, when we look down on them or we call them by names, which we should never use. These are questions which I often get asked about and I often think about them and they still bother me and I have written in this book Jewish Law as Rebellion about them, how to solve them. Uh, the question about God and the Holocaust will stay a very difficult question which I at this moment have not a good answer on. The only thing what I would like to say about that and perhaps important to, for people to hear is I am, as I said, I was brought up on the lab of Spinoza, who didn't believe in God, not in a religious God, let's say. And I, I considered myself mainly an atheist. Also, I was very young, but I was already very involved in all this. One day I meet a woman, an Auschwitz survivor, Holocaust survivor in Amsterdam, who I was told that after the Holocaust, she became religious while she was completely secular before the Holocaust. And I said to myself, I have to see this lady. So I went to her and I told her what my problem was. And I told her, how can you justify God and become religious after the Holocaust? So she said the following to me, which I will never forget, which made an enormous impression on me. She said, young man, don't use the Holocaust as a way to deny the existence of God. And I tell you why. I was in Auschwitz. I was in Treblinka. I was in many other camps. I saw God there all the time because he kept on saving me even when I was already standing in the gas chambers. So don't sell that to me. There is a God. If you ask me, why did that God allow so many other millions of Jews to die? I do not know. But that doesn't mean that God does not exist. It just means we have no clue who God is and why he does the things he does. And that was for me a shocking experience because I suddenly said, my best argument against <laughs> God is God. <laughs> but that, it's a great answer. It's yep. a great story. It's a great story. And what about the Torah being divine? Torah being defined, there are many ways of looking to that. I also don't believe that the whole text came out of Shamayim at the time of Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. By the way, the Talmud also doesn't claim that, at least not all of the rabbis, sages in the Talmud claim that. Uh, some say it was written over the 40 years of the desert by Moses. The problem here is that Maimonides did some damage here. And I say this with the greatest amount of respect for Maimonides, who was by far the greatest of all. But Maimonides certainly made it into a dogma, one of the 13 principles of faith, to say that one must believe that the whole of the Torah, from Bereshit, the first letter of the, of the Torah, to the last letter of the Torah, was given to God, by God, to Moses. And that's the exact text. Now, if you look to earlier authorities before Maimonides, they say this is not true. This is not what the Jewish tradition is saying. There were rabbis, great sages before Maimonides, who were all orthodox, who said it may be that the text developed over many years, that the people, prophets must have added certain parts of the Torah, to the Torah. King David must may have taken out some parts of the Torah for his own reasons. Ezra, the scribe, was involved in creating this particular text. So this text is not the way how it is represented by Maimonides. But since Maimonides, his authority, and here we go back to the authority of rabbis, is so great that suddenly the Orthodox world has bought into this. Well, I know, and some other people also know, that the story is a little bit more complicated. So therefore, how exactly the Torah came into existence is open to question. And there are many theories about it. Uh, Heschel, for example, says, and I fully can understand that, he says it is not so much that God is telling there the story about what happened, but the human beings are telling the story how they met God at Sinai and what they did here and what they did not here. So if the stories, the narratives in the Torah are not given by 
by God to Moses, but were added later on for educational reasons, I have absolutely no problem with that. But I do consider the 613 commandments, the Tariq Mitzvot, as given by God. That's a long story on its own why I believe that, but that is the way how I also live my life. But I don't need this dogmatic attitude. Like the other 13 principles of faith, and I have my doubts if Maimonides believed them himself. I say those every morning. I took yes. it on my on myself. I, I follow for the most part Chabad Minhagim. Right. So it's not a Chabad Minhag. No. But I read it once and I felt that saying this again and again is is good for my Neshama, basically. I understand. It's good for keeping me yep. on the straight path. Yeah. And maybe that was his intention. Yes, I think that one has to understand the certain principles of faith from Maimonides as an historical moment within the history of the Jewish people, what seems to have happened is that Maimonides was asked by the Jews, we are constantly attacked by Christians, by Muslims and others, and they ask us, what is it that you believe? And every time we say, we don't know. We never discuss these matters. We live our halachic lives and we live our religious lives and we never have been thinking in terms like that. Can't you help us out? So what Maimonides said says, okay, I will help you out. I will create certain principles of faith. And you can tell the Muslims and the Christians that that is what we believe. But I have a feeling that if Maimonides would live today and he would hear that we are holding on to this uh, word by word and letter by letter, he would say to us, that's never what I had in mind. It was meant at the time in the 11th century to help these people out. And I have proof, by the way, which is a long story, that some of them, Maimonides definitely did not believe in himself. He just said this for what he called in Hebrew the Hamon Am, the general population, who needed that to hold on to something. And that's fine, but let's not now suddenly sell it as something which is so absolute and can't be at all discussed, which is most of the time the case that people are not prepared to discuss that, that's not telling the truth. The truth is that it can be discussed. Uh, Maimonides was attacked for the certain principles of Faison by very great rabbis of his own days and definitely afterwards. The man who wrote a fantastic work on that was Mark Shapiro. He wrote uh, about the, how is it called, the limits of orthodox belief, I think it is called. And there you have all the sources showing that the story is very different from what we think it is. Okay, last question. Sure. Let's say you had a billboard that millions of Jews would see. What message would you put on your billboard? There is no greater privilege than to be a religious Jew. We are there to serve mankind and to be an inspiration to the world. The gravest sin for a Jew is to forget what he represents. We, the Jews, are God's stake in human history. Are you with us? That's going to be in a traffic jam to read that billboard. <laughs> the, so. the greatest privilege to be a religious Jew. Yeah. That's, a, that's what your billboard says. Yes. And basically, what are you waiting for? That's right. What, is, what does that mean is the greatest privilege to be a religious Jew? It is so fantastic to be a Jew and so fantastic to be a religious Jew, to carry a mission which is meant for the subtotal of the world, which will help the world so much. The world needs the Jewish religious voice. Christianity was not successful, even so we did a lot of good things as well, can't be denied, but also a lot of anti-Semitism. Islam, we see what is happening today badly enough. I think personally that we Jews have to create another religion for the non-Jewish world, and it will have to be founded on the Jewish tradition. We speak about the Sheva Mitzvot, Shilbani Noach, the Seven Commandments of Noach, which really is the Ten Commandments for the non-Jewish world. We have to work on that. We have to spread that message. We have to uh, show that many other mitzvot commandments are part of these seven. And in that way, to inspire the world, which, by the way, is exactly what the Lubavitcher Rebbe wanted to do. And he was absolutely great about that. Okay, thank you very much, Rabbi. It was a great pleasure and a great honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Rabbi Dr. Nathan Lopez Cardozo. To learn more about Rabbi Cardozo and his books, his teachings, lectures, and more, please go to cardozoacademy.org. 
I hope you enjoyed our conversation and thank you for listening. If you want to support this podcast, leaving us feedback will help us grow our audience. Wherever you listen to this podcast, whether it's on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, please make sure to leave us a review and also share it with your friends. And I look forward to joining you in the next conversation.